instead of saying I don't like something, I need to get used to reframing it in my head and saying that composer is interested in different things than I'm interested in. And then once you turn that switch, then you can see the piece as being really valuable. You can see it as being really beautifully made. And it's just about things that don't necessarily interest you, you know? And so I've found that really helpful also in judging competitions where I look at within the world of what this composer is interested in, how, how well is this piece accomplishing its goals? Yeah, I would, as a composer, be interested in writing very different sorts of things for my own output. But it would be really small-minded of me. I, I would even telescope that out to say it would be really small-minded of all of us <laughs> to confuse what is good with what we like. Now, I know you from our time in Beijing and China, and I had a piece on that program. It was an orchestral piece. Right, talked. Talked, yeah. Yep. Piece I wrote in 2016 and uh, was selected to be performed there by the orchestra in Beijing. And I don't remember, you had a piece on as well? No, I was there, uh, I mean, I go to ISCM every year, but that year I was chairing the jury that was selecting the Young Composers Award, and your piece was eligible for it. So I remember hanging out with you, but also being like, I can't talk to him about his piece because I'm also a juror on the panel that that it's eligible for. So So this festival was really interesting, the International Society of Contemporary Music, Mm -hmm. correct? Because it happens every single year. Yeah, uh, it got pandemic for a couple of years, but otherwise it's been happening every year for a hundred years now. And I remember, if I remember correctly, the people that started it were like heavy hitters, like Hindemith, uh, I don't remember who the other were, others yeah, were. But. The, I, I don't remember the exact list, but it was the some of the top composers of that era in the 1920s were frustrated about how they were operating in silos within their own countries and... So they, they formed this organization for the same reason it exists today, to have an international forum where every country can sort of bring its best composers and new compositions to the fore. And so it's like the Olympics in that it's held in a different city around the world every year. So in the last 15 years, I've gone to, uh, they call it the ISCM World Music Days. I've mm-hmm. gone to it in Australia and Belgium and Lithuania and Slovenia and China and Estonia was the year after China. So um, it's been a really rewarding I, partnership. Partnership's the wrong word. Uh, an organization to be part of. Because um, I always go, I always come home feeling like I put my finger on the pulse of contemporary music around the world. Like I get to hear a lot of really cool stuff, find out what's going on in countries I wouldn't otherwise hear about. And how do people apply to be a part of this thing? Like if they want their piece to be performed there. Yeah, ISCM is an organization of organizations. So the members of ISCM, other than its honorary members who are composers, the, the membership is consists of organizations, you know, the Canadian the Composers Guild or the, um, you know, I don't know, the Australian Music Center, you know, mu- national-based representatives of composers join, and then they submit works from their region to be considered to be programmed. And then there's also an individual submission process where people can individually submit direct or directly to the organizer. So the the host, whoever's hosting it, selects works from that huge pool of applicants from all over the world. And 
So you end up with a really diverse program. Yeah, I remember when I was selected, I, I thought it was it was crazy because I thought, oh, wow, I didn't even have to apply to this thing. I was so used to applying to contests and things like this and always putting my name out there and things like this. But I remember uh, Franco Terry, who we both know, mm -hmm. he heard my this orchestra piece mm -hmm. at, uh, I think it was a reading. I think it was at the Minnesota Orchestra reading, actually. He's, oh, yeah. Frank, he heard it there yeah, and so like immediately he wanted to have this play. And I was like, wow, is that is that how things happen <laughs> when you're when you write something, you know, halfway decent? Because you know, I always thought, you know, as you as soon as you write the thing, you got to sell the thing. You know, it's right. not, it doesn't sell itself. That whole trope of, yeah. oh, the music speaks for itself. I never really believed in that, actually. I always thought, okay, I got to, I wrote the thing, the thing got played. Okay, I got to, I, I, I got to sell it somehow. It that, doesn't yeah, speak that, for itself, but that I was wrong in that. That's more than two so. settings. <laughs> like, it's not just you either sell it or it sells itself. Like, I think both can happen. In this case, you were really fortunate that the right people heard it at the right time. Yeah. And then it got propelled to be played by, you know, a, a really great orchestra on an international stage like that. So that was a, a right place at the right time thing for sure. But it's also a really good piece. Well, I mean... Oh, thank you. But, uh, you know, it's when you're at that guy, how, how old was I? I mean, I guess I was six years ago. That would be 23, 24. I mean, at that time, you don't know what, how anything happens. And I right. still don't really know. I have a little bit of a better idea now, but at that time, I, don't, I didn't know how anything happens. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Frank, like this is the best orchestra piece you heard all year. <laughs> I can't be, that. <laughs> that can't be true, you know? And, uh, I thought that was really interesting because I remember him you know, saying, oh, you know, you're representing the United States right. with this in the orchestral category and there are other categories as well. And I was thinking, there's no way that the, this is the, you know, this is, this is the piece that you're picking. But like we were saying earlier before we got on, you kind of have to go with it. You know, if somebody thinks highly of your work, you know, you don't tell them, no, no, this is not, uh, you know, even though in your head, that's what you're thinking. I could have right. done a better job, but say no you know that you i thank you for appreciating my work and i'll go with it and we i would never have been to china would never have met you you yeah. know we wouldn't have be having this conversation yeah that's absolutely right yeah and you're part of that that it's a wonderful tradition iscm is has created you know like berg's violin concerto premiered at an iscm festival you're now like part of that lineage i mean that's a cool thing to be part of yeah, and uh, I mean, I haven't been back since, of course, because it's, you know, going, unless it was in the U.S., I suppose I could go. Uh, Later this year, it'll be in South Africa, the first time in the Afri African continent. Wow. And that'll be in November. And then um, just weeks old now information is that the 2024 World Music Days will be in the Faroe Islands. So, I don't even know where that is. <laughs> uh, draw, draw a triangle between <laughs> the British Isles and Norway and Iceland. Mm -hmm. And right in the middle of that triangle is some islands that are the Faroe Islands. And they look just like you'd expect as a cross between those three places. Jesus. So it's going to be a cool, cool festival. God. Well, I mean. You'll have to come. I, I, that's the thing. You know, it's like, it, it's great that they're in all these different places, but. It's also difficult difficult to get to these places right. sometimes. Even Beijing, I remember having to stand in line and get my visa approved and all this stuff, and yeah. having to, you know, come up with uh, reasons for why I need to be there. It's not yeah. a business trip; it's some other kind of trip. It it was uh, really crazy, you know. I had my car towed when I was trying to get my visa to go to China. 
Really? Yeah, you know, I went down to Houston to the Chinese embassy to pick up my visa, and when I came out, my car had been towed. So, <laughs> See, yeah, it's, diff- it's hard to get to. It's China. difficult, but once you get yeah. there, I mean, it was amazing. Okay, so I want to pivot. I want to pivot to something else because okay. um, I know you're a professor. You're, you're the first professor I've had on this this really? show. Really? Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, you're the first, so no pressure. Yeah, but. Uh, Tell the folks where you teach, because I'm going to screw up the name again. <laughs> I teach and, at Stephen F. Austin State University in East Texas. Mm-hmm. And to get here, how did you? How did you have to eventually get here? Uh, today, yeah. I got up. At, I, my alarm went off at 1:20 a.m. and <laughs> I got out of the house by two and drove to the Houston airport. Got there by around four and got on my flight that departed at 6:02 a.m. And flew direct to Newark, where you were waiting for me. So he's dedicated. He's dedicated to make it out here just for the show. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's here because um, of the, your concert on Saturday. Yeah, uh, I run a summer program called Composing in the Wilderness. And uh, the six compositions that resulted from one of the trips we took composers on this past summer are going to get premiered at Federal Hall on Saturday night. So, like, to me, when I, when I see you and what you do, you do a lot of different stuff. And it's like, for me, it's, it's crazy because I, to me, I don't do that many things. I just kind of compose. I do this <laughs> channel and I go teach a couple times a week. For me, those are, if I can, if somebody can ask me, what do you do? Those are the three things. It's very simple to say. Right. And my brain isn't like, that's all it could take, really. Um, but you do a tremendous amount of things and you do them all very well. And I'm wondering... How does it all? How does it all happen? You're a professor. You're a full professor. It's yep. not. You're not like a, you know, a, not tenured or anything. You're a tenured professor. Not a tenured full professor. You know, you've been doing it for a while. Uh, you're married. You know, you have this composing in the wilderness project, which I want to talk about some more, of course, since that's why you're here. Um, you're you're composing. You have a lot of great pieces, uh, a, a ton of them that you've written over the years. And I'm sure I'm missing something else <laughs> in that list of things, but um, probably starting with being a professor because that's, you were the first one that I've had on. And how did that all come about? And like, what was the transition like from, you know, doing, I'm assuming you, you finished you through all the way to your doctorate and then. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a good example of the sort of, if you use the tortoise and the hare analogy, I'm the tortoise for sure. Um, my trajectory, both as a as a composer and in academia, uh, at least for the first half of it, was a slow and steady wins the race kind of approach. Mm-hmm. I was not a rock star young composer. Um, I was uh, someone who did good work and was reliable and sort of just continued plodding away at it. And so... From, you know, getting a master's at the place where I now work, Stephen F. Austin University, and then going on to get a doctorate at Louisiana State University. Then I started doing adjunct work at some community colleges, and then that led to a full-time position at community college. And then a position opened up at my alma mater. So I applied for it and got it. That was 23 years ago. So I've been at SFA for 23 years now. Um... And then sort of did all the natural steps that you do in academia to go through tenure and promotion along the way. So that, like, I feel like the sort of textbook career for someone in academia is exactly what I did. Get your doctorate, 
do adjunct work until you've got enough resume value to get a full-time job, then do that at a not-so-great school until you get, you know, enough credibility to be at the top of the pack for a, a better school. And so my, it's turned out that SFA has been a fabulous fit for me. And over the 23 years I've been there, it's the School of Music has just seen exceptional growth and maturity and expanded in all sorts of ways. And so now we're, you know, among the, of, of the hundreds and hundreds of music programs in the country, we're among the dozens, of, you know, maybe two or three dozen biggest ones. We're one of those and uh, doing great stuff. And so it's been a rewarding place for me to stay. Um, you know, I haven't ever, since I've been at SFA, I haven't ever decided, oh, maybe I want to move to another position because it's such a good fit for me. And the other thing I noticed about you too, I mean, besides like this, this route you've taken is that it's so different than at least what I'm used to because I grew up in LA mm -hmm. and now I'm in, I've been in New York for eight yep. years. To me, I have this, this stereotypical like wall of not knowing what's going on between the, the coasts. Right. I am like that, yeah. that person that people talk about on Right. Fox News or whatever, yeah. <laughs> that they don't know what's going on. It's just the coastal elite. Well, I'm here I, to I go tell to you I go to Columbia University and all this stuff. <laughs> here we are, we're talking. Yeah. So this is this is another reason I want to have you on. I have no idea what's going on there, and and uh, you know you got your doctorate from LSU, mm -hmm. and then you're 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 in Texas teaching. Mm -hmm. And what is like? What would you say the biggest difference is between being over there? in that world and then you come to New York a few times a year. So you you see the the different changes. Yeah, it's subtle and it's hard. There's it would be uh unfair for me to characterize it as one flavor or another in terms mm -hmm. of what's the same and what's different. Certainly um I think that on the East Coast there is generally in the composition world, the the universe that you and I float around in um, I think on the East Coast, there is a greater feeling that um, composers should be doing things entirely un like individual mm -hmm. and it should be always breaking new ground. Or there's an, even when it doesn't break new ground, there's always sort of the, the weight in the air of are you extending the field are you carrying on the tradition into the future and i think in the middle of the country there's less of that angst frankly mm -hmm. um there's a lot of great composers who are doing cutting edge work in the middle of the country but also there are a lot of people who are writing fabulous accessible band pieces for all the band i mean every high school and college in the whole country has a band looking for new repertoire, yeah. you know, and somebody's supplying those, and those don't need to be the piece that introduce new techniques into the repertoire or introduce new harmonic vocabularies. Uh, they need to be fresh and engaging, mm -hmm. and and so there. I think in there's a greater sense of um, freedom to to follow those paths. Also, I know at our university and at many universities, there's there's a growing embracing of sort of the multiple channels that composition exists in now in ways that weren't true when I was a student. I was a student, you know, chamber and concert music is what you studied in academia. So the other thing, sort of thinking about the differences that I see now are that a lot of programs in, in the middle of the country and probably on the coast too, are being more embracing about media scoring and other, you know, collaborative projects, things that, that I didn't get to really study when I was a student, 
because I think that back then it was a little more ivory tower-ish and you just wrote chamber and concert music. But now our program is sort of cross-pollinating with our sound recording technology program in really wonderful ways. We've got classes in video game scoring. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of of other universities sort of adopting media scoring and interdisciplinary theater scoring, things like that, in ways that didn't used to happen. Do you find that most of your students now, or is there a healthy kind of mix of people that are interested in the kind of media stuff and people that are interested in like doing concert music or stuff that's like kind of off? Media scoring path. and especially video games have really grown over the last 10 years, but we still have a pretty good mix. You know, in, in Texas in particular, band is like a religion. Mm -hmm. uh, we have fabulous music education programs in our public schools in Texas, and the bands are the best you can imagine. They play at, at the level that professional orchestras play. And um, so a lot of students, some students will come to us and say, I want to be a composer because I want to write for video games. And that's great. And other students will have been in a band program that just, you know, participated in a consortium commission and had John Mackey come to their school and they get turned on by the fact that, oh, that's a living composer and I could be one of those and I love band. And so we still get an awful lot of students who come wanting to, to be band composers uh, because they were so inspired by all the cool repertoire they were playing in their high school. And it's direct and also seeing the living composer because I yeah. I actually didn't see a living composer until um until high school, but I was I was in this kind of crazy program with the with the LA Phil as a young composer fellow. I mean it was right. it was intense and the composer that I met there, that our mentor composer was the late Steve Stuckey. Oh really who wonderful. Is like the I mean at that time I had no idea, but he is like one of these established super established people in the yeah. composition world. Yeah. And I wonder if I met a John Mackey type person at that age instead, I wonder if things would have been uh, different, you know, just because of that, you know, it's so important when you're that young, like what are you being, uh, what, what are you getting in contact with? Yeah, it's, it's we talk a lot as composers about how, um, you know, ban the band world is mostly programming music by living or recently dead composers, and the orchestral world not so much. Um, especially in in high school programs, in particular. But that has a huge impact on who thinks they might want to be a composer, yeah, and what they think they might want to compose. And so over the years, we see more and more band students want to be composers because of exactly this. Mm -hmm. A composer came to their high school and they thought, oh, composers are alive? That's cool. Yeah, you know? this has never happened with, in my experience. I mean, I, yeah. I, I grew up playing in bands. Actually, I played the clarinet and then later the saxophone, but we never had a composer come to, the, to our high school or our middle school. And like I said, that was the first experience I had with a living composer was yeah. Steve Stuckey, who I see Steve Stuckey, he's writing pieces for orchestra. So, okay, that's what a composer is supposed to be doing. Right. And that's the path that I followed. But even before that, I know a lot of composers or people that want to be composers, they hear John Williams or they hear Hans Zimmer or they hear right. any of these things uh, when they're watching movies and they think, oh, that's what being a composer is like. So right. I feel like that, <laughs> that more than anything else, like develops what your aesthetic ends up being. Right, right. That early, it's yeah. like learning a language, you know, right. when you're a young person, you know, you learn English and nothing else, that's what you're going to, how can you expect them to learn, you know, Chinese uh, 20 years down the road when they only right. been speaking English the whole time? I feel like it's the same way with a comp composition aesthetics and 
when I meet people that um, are very, very open to hearing different aesthetics, I get mm-hmm. excited because like, why? Why are you, you know, right. why are you into, like you go to ISCM, yeah. you're not just hearing the stuff that you like to write. You're hearing right. like, you're hearing everything at, yeah. at, at a conference like that. Yeah. So that to me is also very interesting. Like you're in, like you're in kind of this uh, silo and I'm also in a silo, a different kind of silo. But in your world, it's, it's more this kind of traditional, uh, compared to what I do or what I, people that I see in New York do, it's traditional, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, but I see that as something that's viable and something that should continue. It's not something like Boulez says, oh, right. you know, we shouldn't do that anymore. Right. But if you talk to many of the people that I know, perhaps they would think, oh, that's, I don't like that. Why would you even listen to that? Well, you, know? you bring up ISCM. One of the things that I'm always reminded at, at ISCM that is germane to this exact point you're making is that instead of saying I don't like something, I need to get used to reframing it in my head and saying that composer is interested in different things than I'm interested in. And then once you turn that switch, then you can see the piece as being really valuable. You can see it as being really beautifully made. And it's just about things that don't necessarily interest you, you know? And so um, I, I've found that really helpful also in judging competitions where I look at, is this piece, it, you know, it, within the world of what this composer is interested in, how, how well is this piece accomplishing its goals? Um, yeah, I would, as a composer, be interested in writing very different sorts of things for my own output, but I would, it would be really small-minded of me. I, I would even telescope that out to say it would be really small-minded of all of us <laughs> to confuse what is good with what we like. You know, there, like there are things we like certain foods and we dislike other foods. That doesn't make the other foods bad, right? It's just we're not, we don't like them. And so, or we don't prefer them. So I think stylistically going to these places like ISCM or even for me, even coming to New York City and seeing concerts that are different than what I would see in Texas, that's, that's a great reminder about how we, we all benefit from diversity in the field, from a lot of different composers being interested in a lot of different things. That benefits all of us. And so when I see somebody writing a really good piece that uses techniques or approaches or, you know, systems that are things that don't interest me, but they're doing it really well, I should be cheering for them, not saying, ah, I don't like, I don't like people who do that. Yeah. I mean, I like this point you bring up about diversity too, because diversity can mean a lot of things. Right. And I feel like when people talk about diversity, uh, style is not something that's talked about openly that often. It's, it's always about more you know, which which is fine, surface level things like race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. Those are all important things. But I never hear any more discussion of style, this, this discussion of aesthetic uh, being brought up. It's it's almost like we we almost don't even care that much what the music sounds like as as long as the, you know, as long as we're kind of getting, I'm talking about from an institutional perspective. Yeah. As long as we're getting kind of the face that we want, the aesthetic, uh, we don't really care so much about what they do aesthetically. And oftentimes, actually, what happens is the aesthetics are, are a lot more hampered down than, than maybe what that organization actually needs. So, I mean, I'm saying a very general thing, obviously. Yeah, I, I'm opening up think, a can of worms, but well, it's important sure, to talk it's, about. It's a can of worms that's worth opening. I would just say those things are not mutually exclusive and that um, diversity does benefit all of us in both ways. 
And so um, when I was uh, on a speakerphone call with the performers that are doing our concert on Saturday, you know, they're rehearsing the pieces now. I have not heard the pieces. And the first thing they said was how excited they were about how diverse the stylistic content Mm. of the program was, which we all found reason to celebrate. Now, it's also a very diverse group in terms of their life backgrounds, their life experiences, where they come from, you know, but... I agree with you. I think musical stylistic diversity is really, really healthy for the field. I think that's part of the sort of vacuum that was created in the middle of of the last century where composers and audiences had a period where they weren't really, you know, they were dating other people. (laughs) And, um, uh, And so I think that was largely because the composing community got a sense that there was one right way of doing things, and they stopped encouraging diversity. And the audience, I, I think, that one of that's one of many factors, but the audiences didn't feel like that, that monolithic way of thinking was necessarily a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, some of those remnants are still exist today. Yeah. Uh, especially on, especially on the East coast, I have to say, you know, it's there, that attitude still exists that there is a right way to do things. And that's why I'm really interested about this whole, you know, I know that the Midwest clinic happens every year in mm-hmm. Chicago, I believe, yep. right. Where the, where they have all these bands come in and all these directors and all these education mm-hmm. type people. Uh, and I know you also go there yep. every year or almost every year, right? So uh, I've been the last three years. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I didn't, I mean, I missed during the pandemic, but the last three yeah, of course, times but, they've offered it. I mean, this is something, but we don't really see in my East Coast no, it's world. A very we don't have world. A, we don't have anything like this right. where we all get together and, uh, you know, share ideas. And I wish we did, but there is that mindset that I think we were talking about off camera that there is like uh, the heaviness about always, you know, being on your own uh, there's nobody's helping me to do to get to the next step. It's all about me. Right. But this attitude that I see from you know you folks that are at the Midwest Clinic every every year. Um, I don't know if everybody knows what I'm talking about, but this annual yeah, it's conference. the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. It's Chicago the week before Christmas every year, and it is uh, it's a vibrantly exciting place to be. A huge conference with exhibitors, all publishers and instrument makers. And performances day after day of, of high school and and uh, college and professional ensembles, large ensembles and chamber groups, programming, you know, playing new music, doing high level concerts. The U.S. Navy Band, mm-hmm. you know, um, Viet Quang had a really terrific piece premiered at Midwest this year um, by Eighth Blackbird and the U.S. Navy Band, mm-hmm. and so that was it was just I mean it's it's a great place to see and hear new stuff. But especially stuff that that educational bands and orchestras, college and high school, like top high schools and all colleges are playing. That's a a really great uh, fertile ground for new publications. They're looking for new repertoire, um, and so I think you know there's a lot of vacuum that can be filled by composers there. And it's also a great hang with composers. There are loads and loads of composers there, and so we all get together and swap stories and swap business cards and network and yeah it sounds great i've never been yeah you'll have to come i i, I have to come uh, one of these years but i i wish we had some a similar kind of thing out here you would think that it would work well out here actually yeah. um it would be very different <laughs> right in a lot of different ways but i feel like something like that out here would be well very, chamber music very america cool. happens in new york 
Chamber uh, Music America, but I don't think that is that is it's, that geared towards it's composers. Music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I never hear any composer friends going to something like that. You know? I haven't been to Chamber Music America. So I yeah, there you go. There, there, as an example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like something like League of American Orchestras, mm -hmm. and also I don't think composers normally go to that yeah. kind of thing either. But composers are very, very welcome. I I have a sense at this kind of. This Midwest clinic, right? yes, I mean, it's and there's normal all, for composers to come, not just educators and yeah, musicians. they like composers to be there. And you commissioning happens there. I got a commission there the first year I went, and that converted me. I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> um, and so there are a lot of people there, not only looking for new repertoire, but interested in meeting composers and seeing if they could be part of a consortium commission or something. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely worth doing, and definitely you're right as as part of the bigger conversation we're having. A great example of how what's going on in the middle of the country, you know, is quite different than the coastal parts of the country. Um, Midwest is a, probably a good example of that. Yeah, I mean, it's in a big city. It's in Chicago. Right. It's still in one of these kind of, you know, big metropolitan areas, but still the the proximity, you know, it's, it's location kind of away from New York and L.A. I mean, it helped. Right. That alone, I think, helps a lot to cultivate that kind of thing. But Speaking of commissions, I know you, you. We haven't talked about any of your music, and uh, on this channel, I I want to bring some more uh, perspectives uh, on the music itself as well. So I want okay. I want uh, I'm going to play a little bit of your excerpt here of uh, all the songs that Nature sings. Okay. For orchestra with the Boulder Philharmonic. Now, this is just an excerpt. This, we only play about two minutes of this piece mm -hmm. here, but how did this come about? What was the motivation behind it? And uh, were you happy with it at the end of the day? 
with this uh, with this or big orchestra piece. I mean, I'm sure you have to write you months and months to write a piece like this. Yeah, this was one of the most rewarding collaborations of my career, and it's sort of a, a longish story, but it's worth telling the long way because um, there's a couple sort of life lessons that I learned along the way. It began with a cold email of me emailing a conductor that I didn't know. I mean, literally the first sentence was, uh, you won't know who I am, but comma, <laughs> you know, dot, dot, dot. And um, I was pitching to Michael Butterman, who was is the conductor at Boulder, but was also and still is the conductor of the Shreveport Philharmonic, which is right near my university. So uh, Shreveport Symphony. So I emailed him to see if Shreveport, my local orchestra, might be interested in premiering a work that I hadn't written yet, but was in the middle of uh, about gates of the Arctic National Park. So I, I write pieces about national parks um, and didn't hear back from him for a long time. And then suddenly did hear back from him. And he said, this sounds like a terrific idea, but don't you think Boulder would be a better audience for this than Shreveport? And I, I of course, I said yes. Yeah. And so Fast forward, they premiered my piece about Gates of the Arctic National Park, and it was wildly successful for me and for them. The audiences loved it. They're an outdoor-themed sort of orchestra. In Boulder. In Boulder, Colorado, so everybody loves to hike. And so that's how our relationship got started. And then uh, subsequently, Michael Butterman has programmed that piece and some of my other pieces with some of his other orchestras. So he and I had a very stable relationship by the time that all the songs started being talked about. And what happened was Rocky Mountain National Park was turning 100 the year before or two years before the National Park Service was turning 100. Mm -hmm. So we had a confluence of centennials. And 2016 was the year that the National Park Service turned 100. And so... The Boulder Phil's team submitted a grant application to the National Endowment for the Arts for a commissioning fee to commission a new work about Rocky Mountain National Park okay. to commemorate both centennials. And Rocky is their local park, is you know, just an hour away for them in Boulder. And so I had been the artist in residence at Rocky Mountain National Park already. So there are all these pieces that were already in place. And they got funded for the grant, and so they commissioned me to write this piece. It was right from the beginning they wanted a piece. Well, we, we cooked this idea up together that it would involve projected imagery. So this was a piece that was written knowing that there would be projected imagery with it ahead of time. And so I, was, I sort of created the idea for what, what that imagery would do and then how the music would complement that. So those two things evolved at the same time and the, and I selected the imagery some of it's mine but much of it is oh, from wow. the, the National Park Service um and then I wrote the piece and then while I was finishing the piece they got a further big bonus and they were selected um as one of the four orchestras for the first year of the Kennedy Center's Shift Festival which is a, a festival of American orchestras and um so they that same year they were premiering my piece, we also got then to take it to the Kennedy Center and, and perform it there as part of this national festival of orchestras, along with some other great orchestras. So, um, so the, the performance came off great. The, uh, 
I, I felt like it was a really, really terrific project that we worked on together. So it sounded like there had to be a lot of moving parts that worked all in sync together for yeah. a big orchestra piece to to happen like this. It yeah, doesn't just it was, happen on its own. Right. It's a confluence of lots of things, lots of, you know, the, we couldn't have planned those centennials and then NEA grant and all those things just happened to all flow together to come to a culmination that was really wonderful. But it all started with you sending that email just in, as yeah. an idea. So yeah, and it, that was for a whole different piece. Right. But I, that's why I wanted to rewind back there because as composers, probably the people who are watching this, yeah, they're you all and most, I, mostly composers. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all, we all struggle with this cold call kind of fear of, I, we know we sometimes need to approach groups about doing things who don't know who we are and we're afraid it won't pan out. And, you know, you know, absolutely it won't pan out if you don't do it. And so that that life lesson of sometimes you just got to throw your stuff out into the universe and see what sticks. And this one happened to stick, and then it led to other things that stuck even better. But I feel like you were smart about it because you had a real reason to contact these specific orchestras. There right. was an idea that made sense for them. Right. See, because about six years ago or so, around the time that we met, uh, actually, I did this whole cold calling thing, or uh -huh. cold emailing thing, and I had this whole method, and I collected like 300 emails, and it was crazy, you know, because I yep. had maybe five, six orchestral pieces at that time that were all performed. I had recordings, and I thought, okay, let's see where this goes. Right. And absolutely none of them worked out. I was O for 300, or whatever the number was. Yeah. I did get maybe like 20% or so to send me a nice email back. Thank you for sending this, you know, like this kind of, uh, which I thought was not bad, 20%. But none of them actually ended up panning out because I feel like, you know, there was no, there was no, for lack of a better word, angle, I guess. But it seems like you're, you had an idea that made sense. It, it was like, how can I, how can I add value to what, this orchestra is doing like of course you know you want to have a piece played but what's right. in it for the what's in it for them and the way that and it's it's also natural for you because that's what a lack of a yeah, sorry for the pun but yeah <laughs> it's natural for you right. to, uh, yeah, to, this, uh, to go off of this kind of idea you you're know, right it this comes easy to you stumbling into being as as I say, an adventurer composer, mm -hmm. me stumbling into that pieces about national parks, pieces inspired inspired by wilderness, uh, that has become a, a creative space that I've been able to fill. That that is uh, interestingly, I didn't start doing that for for any kind of savvy reasons. Yeah, I did it not. because that's where my <laughs> passions were. Yeah, you know, we all write music. We write music about what inspires us. Like we get inspired, we write music. So I go to natural places. I go to wilderness. That's what inspires me. And so it was very natural for that to start becoming part of my output. And then I discovered, yes, as you say, that there, there are programming reasons why that can fit a program. Somebody's doing the Alpine Symphony and they want other natural pieces to go with it. Or the Centennial of the National Park Service is coming along and they want to do park-related pieces. Or, yeah, you know. But that's not something so, that you can necessarily plan until you figure out what it is you like because that right. kind of thing could be applied to a million other different ideas right it, the nice thing about or especially the orchestral world well any any kind of music really is that there's been music written about everything right so you could fit potentially in, on into any type of program that fits the ideas that you like right and i found the same kind of thing you know they program my 
my pieces with things that are more like, you know, Eastern inspired for whatever kind of issues there are with that. That's just the fact, you know, they right. would program, like I had pieces programmed with Scheherazade a bunch of times. It is what it is kind of, because I don't program my own works. They program right. around, you know, my piece or that piece, et cetera. So it has to make sense. And the same thing is for you. And, and none of us are any different too. Right. Even, uh, even when you're a, a, heavy, a heavy hitter like Glass or, Atoms or sure. something, there's always those programming considerations being made. There, it can be, you know, and I, I certainly don't have the world's best success record at getting programmed with professional orchestras either, but it can be real helpful if you figure out what stuff your pieces program well with. And then when you approach a new orchestra, you can say, hey, if you're ever doing, you know, uh, this piece that includes this instrumentation, my piece has that same instrumentation and makes a great balancing piece for that. Or, you know, thematically, like with my national park pieces, some symphonies like to play Ferdi Grofe's Grand Canyon Suite, mm -hmm. you know? And so I can remind orchestras, oh, if you're going to do Grand Canyon Suite, I've got a great piece that could go with that. Um, that makes a lot so of sense. When yeah. you're pitching your own works, often if you're pitching it to someone who's doing the programming for a symphony, having suggestions like that can be really helpful. Yeah, to get the idea in their head, but at the end of the day, it has to be their idea. I feel right. like for it to work out, yep. but it's yep. it's 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 a great way to think because I I oftentimes hear people complain, oh, I don't get programmed, I don't get this, I don't get that. But it's not always about you, you know. Right. It's actually not about you, really. I mean, right. at the end of the day, it's about the music and how it fits. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, most of the music being played today in in concert halls is not by people that are living. <laughs> right. So it's right. not about them. It's yeah. about the music. You know, sometimes an orchestra will have selected two or three of the pieces for a program, still not have selected what the last 15 minutes will be, but they know what the instrumentation for that concert is. And so you may have a great piece that would match their programming, but the instrumentation is just isn't going to make it for that one because it would change their whole budget for that whole year, which was fixed 19 months ago, you know? Exactly. But there are a lot of logistical concerns that you're right when you said it's, sometimes it's just not about you. And um, that's a, a, a reality that we face every day. Yeah, but it's tough for us as composers because it, it usually is about us all the time because we're writing <laughs> right. the piece. <laughs> right. And you always have to think, what do I like? What do I like? What am yeah. I inspired by? What... Yeah. What am I writing today? What am I writing tomorrow? Oh, I didn't like what I wrote yesterday. I have to do this. I It's always me, 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 me. And you can't right. help that because, and this is something I talk about in the class that I teach, it's this idea of, the, it's almost like the, the Renaissance, but to the nth degree, this idea of individualism right. and humanism and, yeah. and expression. And you can't help but have that attitude when you're writing the piece, like not to think about anybody else, but what you like. But when you get into any situation where it's anybody but you, you have to completely flip the script mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the way that you're handling that social yep. situation. And I don't think that uh, that's something that I've had to learn. It, it definitely didn't come easily for me. Um, and I don't think it comes easily for a lot of composers too. Right. So right. Um, I want to switch gears to uh, this other piece that I really like of yours, this trio. Um, oh. The Particle Accelerator. Yeah. And let's hear a little bit of that now.
Um, this piece for flute, oboe, and clarinet. So different than the orchestral work, I think. Like, it's very rhythmic. It's got a lot of uh, play, a lot of counterpoint, uh, a lot of crazy uh, rhythmic changes. Mm -hmm. And um, the players, I feel like, the most of all that I noticed from this is that they're having fun playing the piece. So I was just wondering how this, also how this one came about. And uh, it sounds like it gets a lot of performances, too. They they have performed it a lot, yeah. So let me back up and I'll, I'll tell you the inception of it because it's a fun story. Um, the flute player in that trio formerly worked at my institution, so it was a longtime friend of mine, and she was sitting in a recital where a quintet of mine was being played and was texting me. I, I was at home watching Stargate reruns. And she was in this concert in the back row, being a bad concert attendee, texting. <laughs> and, she's, and she started saying, oh, I'm listening to your piece. Oh, they're playing it too slow. Like, you know, just the snarky things we say to one another in that situation. And so I hadn't heard from her in a while. And um, one thing led to another. And she said, oh, we need to play more of your music. And I said, well, don't you think it's time that, you know, you play something new? <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> and so we... As a result of that text stream, um, she got put her head together with her trio members and decided that they could each chip in a little bit to do do a quick commission. I wanted to write for them, so I wasn't going to charge them a lot of money. And um, so they, you know, we we worked out a commission, and they gave me like their top priorities of what they wanted, and each one of them had a different priority. One one of them wanted. Um, I think it was the oboe player who wanted highly technical rhythmic stuff yeah they got that yeah <laughs> right uh, i can't remember what each one of them wanted but i know that was in there and then one of them wanted um interesting um harmonic colors and textures and so um i was uh i had just done the iscm world music days in estonia it was the year after we met mm -hmm. And I went directly from there to a composing residency at the Visby uh, International Center for Composers, which is in Sweden on uh, the island of Gotland. And so I, this is the piece that I wrote there. And I had just, the, it's, I'm telling the story because one of the last events I was at at ISCM was this mixer event that they throw for composers and conductors and performers and presenters. And they call it the Composer Collider. Okay. And it's just—it's a name that they've used year after year as they've done this event at, in different places. And so I had just come a few days ago from the Composer Collider. And that had, of course, made me think, as it would, of the Particle Accelerator. Okay, that makes sense. I was going to ask yeah. how the title and come And so, about. like, that was where the mental connection came from, because I didn't have any idea for this piece. I didn't have, like, a, an idea going into it that it would be programmatic in any way. And so, um, so I'm here in, at this residency in Sweden, and I started thinking about the particle accelerator. And so, I started Googling it, and I discovered that the names of the experiments at CERN are so funny and cool that I just had to make them movement titles. So the movements are titled uh, 
super proton synchrotron (laughs) and um, big European bubble chamber. And then the middle movement is called ALICE, which is an acronym for a large ion collider experiment. Um, and so these are it's the people who name these experiments. I just think they're so wonderful and Star Trekky sounding, and and sort of I, it just felt right that those would be the movement titles. And so once I had those movement titles, then the piece sort of flowed from there. And so it's very very loosely based on particle physics, but not in any concrete way. I mean, like the middle movement, there are three. If you think of the three instruments, there are three particles that are bound together. Mm-hmm. And then as they heat up, they start to break apart. And so they start out very homophonic, doing a thing together that they can't get away from one another. And then slowly their lines become more individual, first one instrument, and then, then all three of them start floating in their own directions. And then as the experiment cools back down, they coalesce back into a bound. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, Almost so. like a proton, neutron, electron. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, with, with the three instruments. Yeah, and so and the likewise the other movements are based on you know some of the imagery of how the particles um, split apart and things like that. So it's very loosely. Uh, it just basically gave me the very framework of an idea, and then I let the the music run with that in the direction that it wanted to. Um, it was it's a fun piece, and they've played it an awful lot. Um, that summer, the year they commissioned it, they did it at all of the international the uh, International Flute Association and the Double Reed Society mm-hmm. and the Clarinet Association, a couple others too. Um, and then subsequently I've made a saxophone quartet version of it that it works really well too. It just took the three voices and somehow yeah, I made, it, made it into four. Yeah, and discovered that with that fourth voice I could do some cool things that I hadn't been able mm-hmm. to do with the three. So both mm-hmm. versions work really well. This is an interesting ensemble. I've never heard of, you know, flute, oboe, clarinet ensemble. I always hear, you know, flute, oboe, clarinet, and then horn and yeah, uh, bassoon, like yeah, a woodwind, woodwind quintet. quintet. Yeah, well, they, I, I don't know what their reasoning was for forming this trio. They're, they're all at the University of Alabama. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what their initial reasoning was to have it be a, a upper wind trio. But it, you're, you're right, it is an interesting... The absence of a low instrument challenges you as a composer. It challenged me. Yeah, it's, I didn't even miss it, though, when I was listening to it. I, I listened to the whole way through, and I didn't feel like I missed the low end. Good. I think the way that you handled it is... You, I, don't, I'm not, I didn't play it. You have to listen to the whole thing um, down description below, but because I'm, I'm only putting the first couple minutes. Mm-hmm. But the second movement, I think, is what you know, kind of makes the piece work because mm-hmm. it's such a slow kind of, you know, these kind of long kind of phrases and things like this that help because if you just play the first and third movement back to back, a lot of it is very similar and right, too frenetic, yeah. And that and that kind of thing. And um it doesn't show off the kind of what what the instruments want the the players want to show off how good their tone quality is and, right. and all those years they work to to produce that kind of sound, their instrument. I think that's one of the highlights of that piece. Well, thank you. They liked the middle movement the best, too. Oh, so really? You, there you yeah, go. <laughs> you're in good company with the performers there. Yeah. Well, I, it's always, you know this, I mean, it's so gratifying to work with, A, performers who are eager to play a piece of yours, and B, performers who are really good and then invest the level of energy and rehearsal time and attention to detail in your piece to really bring out what it can be. And when that's done as, at its best then you, the composer, discover the piece 
blossoms in ways that you hadn't even anticipated. And that's what they did. They're really, really great players and they really brought it to life. Yeah. And this idea of also adapting a piece that you wrote uh, for another ensemble also, Mm -hmm. I I really love this idea and I've been doing it a lot lately uh, because it's just so much work to get the first version there. And then oftentimes you just want to like, all right, that's it. I want to move on to something else. But if there's, if it's a strong idea, why not let different kind of players and go with it too. Yeah, absolutely. And and in this case, of course, you brought up the point that you'd never heard of a would a, yeah. a flute clarinet oboe no. trio. So it's not like the piece is going to be like just flying off the shelves in its original instrumentation. Right. But how many saxophone quartets are there out there? Right. Well, there were you, you know, can't throw a rock without hitting one, <laughs> you know? And so there are lots of great saxophone quartets. So I thought, yeah, this this material would really lend itself to that ensemble equally well. Yeah, I've done so. a similar thing, but with string quartet, I would take mm-hmm. my string quartet that I wrote and then adapt it for saxophone quartet. Right. I think that's the only time I've done something like that for saxophones, mm-hmm. adapting it from strings, but adapting it from other winds, I never thought of doing something like that. Yeah. But I feel like that kind of idea also of adapting instruments for other ensembles, you know, it's not something that I see that often in my my silos, my circles here. A lot mm-hmm. of times there people are writing things that are so specific that can only be played by right. certain instruments that they cannot be adapted. And then it kind of gets, it kind of lives and dies with the first performance. Right. Even if it's a great piece because it's so specific to that. So on the airplane on the way here... I listened to, I can't think of the name. Your pieces have names that I can't remember. Oh, they're like old Arabic names. Yeah. um, The electric guitar and keyboard. Oh, the Sedect. That one is not Arabic. That's just a made up word. But but as a case in point of a really specific instrumentation of a piece that, that's an amazing piece of music, Saad. That's amazing. I appreciate that. And... Yet it would be really almost impossible to translate that to any other no. ensemble. Yeah, and I haven't. That's right? It. How could you? I mean, yeah. what would that guitar part become? You can't, like, that couldn't become harp. <laughs> no, or, <laughs> no, I don't know. I haven't. So, um, yeah, that's, but it's a great example of, you know, some, there are lots of terrific pieces that just aren't easily adaptable across other instruments. But then the ones that are, it can be a, both a really good, very satisfying creative choice to, to adapt it, but it can also just be a savvy, you know, sales choice that the piece suddenly will get programmed a whole lot more. Or not. It could yeah. be, it could go both ways, but it's sure. also a creative exercise yeah. too, to see, oh, yeah. like, what, how can I, how can I take this material and, and, orca- and you know, it's reorchestration. Right. It's something that we do when yeah. we were growing up, you know, taking orchestration class. Right. You know, orchestrate a list, piano piece for orchestra. It's it's yeah. almost like the same kind of thing, but we're doing it with our own pieces. Right. But yeah. I feel like for some reason there's this at least in my circles, there's a stigma behind it. It's like, oh, you know, uh, you're just come to doing... the middle of the country. I know, there's no right? stigma. There's no stigma. <laughs> I mean, I do it anyway. I do my own thing. I kind of just do my own thing and not worry about it. But you 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 hear that noise, you hear that uh you hear that talk, but uh I, I mean, I, I enjoy doing it because I know where how... Could the, I, I'm actually yeah. baffled by that. I mean, the Adagio for Strings that we all love is an adaptation, I actually right? didn't know that. It is? From what? A string, string quartet. quartet. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know like, that. And, 
and the you know the fanfare for the common man appears in a larger symphonic work and Bernstein's trouble in Tahiti then became part of a larger operatic work like there the people that we revere people that were from New York yeah did this all the time not to mention like the Bach partitas and you know right. they're all yeah. different I mean, every we single instrument long, long dead people but but yeah I, know. I think that there's no there's certainly no I I can't think of what the the stigma would be attached to. And my I yeah. and my philosophy, at least, you know, if you want to talk about money and royalties and all that stuff is while we're alive, you know, why don't we enjoy the <laughs> the copyright, you know, right. laws as they exist? Because 70 yeah. years after we pass, it's it's it. That's right. it. That's it's done. You know? Yeah. So why can't we just enjoy <laughs> whatever royalties might come from right. adapting our pieces for it's our piece, you know, yeah. why not? So yeah. um as long as it doesn't take time away from writing new music, that's that's the way that I, because if I'm just living in the past, rehashing all my older pieces, that's a problem, right? But right. as long as you're continuing to write new stuff um, and keeping the older stuff alive by making new versions of it, I don't see what the issue is. Right. But, you know. Yeah. I've got a few of my older pieces that when a dry spell comes, when commissions are, are lagging for a few months, I've got a few that I've got in my head, oh, that would make a great band piece or, oh, mm. I should just do a piano-only version of that. Or, mm. you know, I, there are a few of mine that I think still have life in other incarnations. But like you say, you don't want to take the time away from your next project to do that. So I kind of have to, I have a wish list of things that'll happen when I get a dry spell. Yeah, I've done the so. same thing, kind of actually the same exact thing, especially during COVID. I was making a lot of uh, arrangements of, like I have this piece for violin and piano. I was like, why can't I just make it for viola and piano? Right. Cello and piano. Right. And then I kind of went crazy with it and did flute and piano and, and you know, mm -hmm. things that kind of were farther away from violin and piano. Right. But why not? You know, what's yeah. the, it's not hurting anyone. And if I have the time and want to do it, what's the big deal? So right. anyway, maybe this is just me th on the East Coast thinking in my East Coast way, but I, it, it sounds like from where you are and uh, what your normal interactions are, it's not, it's not, it's a normal thing. It's not even something that people think about twice. Yeah, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't. I wouldn't think about that twice. And mm. it's just a matter of a time calculation for me of whether I have the time to do it. And sometimes I even had colleagues who were interested in adapting a piece of mine. Let them do the adaptation. Mm. You know, they've got the time, and that way we get the adaptation. So, yeah, I'm. I wouldn't. I can't. I, all of music history agrees with the adapting idea. Yeah, I don't exactly. Know, I don't know who it is that originated <laughs> the not adapting, but yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming by. I mean, of this, course. Was, this was a lot of fun. Please check out Stephen Lyons' website down in the description below, and those two pieces I played are also down in the description below. So thanks, thanks again for coming. Oh, it's great pleasure. Thanks for having me.